Hello, and welcome to In Reality, the podcast about power, truth, and media. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the former CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Hi, and I'm Joan Donovan, the Research Director of Harvard Kennedy Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Hello, Joan. How's it going, Eric? It's going well. Our guest today should be really interesting. It is Dr. Lena Wen. She's an outspoken advocate for public health, uh, a field that has had its own troubles with disinformation. But um, before we get to, to Dr. Wen, there is a lot that's swirling around in the news regarding our field. A lot of it, unfortunately, has arisen around the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, the shooting at the school there, which predictably and lamentably has given rise to all kinds of false information, people taking advantage of the attention that that episode has drawn to advance all kinds of uh, unsavory narratives. What's your take on it? Yesterday, I was talking with Ben Collins from NBC News about a particularly disgusting manipulation campaign. So something interesting happens in times when we don't get a lot of information from a mass shooter. So in contrast to the episode in Buffalo, where the mass shooter left a long manifesto that explained his position on racial politics, explained that he was a white nationalist, he was a vicious racist, uh, he had um, a deep interest in guns. And so it becomes very easy to explain the theory of the crime. However, what happened in Texas is very different in the sense that you have someone who posts a few posts on Instagram, one of them with visible weapons, but there isn't the same kind of explanation of motive and tactics um, and then they go in and they kill babies. I mean, these are young kids. Uh, it's not typical of school shootings where people murder their peers. So it's not the case that you could say, oh, he was being bullied by these people or there's no logicality to the explanation. So what ends up happening online, of course, is that media manipulators and disinformers know that there's this knowledge gap and rush in to fill it with information. And and in this case, uh, it begins on Reddit with a poster saying, oh, I found pictures of the shooter and this person is transgender. And here are some pictures to prove it. Then you get the actual transgender person step in and say, these are pictures of me and I am very much alive. This is terrible, right? And then it moves over to Twitter. And I've explained this in my research around when information moves across platforms, it actually gets filtered and you lose the context of the criticism. And so very quickly, it traded up the chain to uh, Representative Paul Gosar then tweeting that this was a quote unquote transsexual, uh, which is a, a slur. And so we're in this unfortunate situation where misinformation is going to reign in these instances, and it's going to be very difficult for platform companies to uh, filter this information out as it's happening, especially when it's being circulated by very important individuals like politicians. I would say that in this circumstance that Representative Gosar acted the role of a useful idiot to the T. Yeah, but if you put it in into the larger context that we're seeing around trans panic online and this notion that, you know, we, we're seeing more and more trans people uh, outed online, we're seeing more of them doxxed, we're seeing their own social media weaponized and turned against them in order to uh, harass them. We're seeing the proliferation of discourse of uh, anti-LGBT rhetoric around accusing trans people as well as LGBTQ folks as being groomers uh, or somehow these, uh, you know, somehow perverts. This is a long trope that we've seen in the past. And then we're seeing real policy, real laws be enacted in different states, in particular Florida, 
that makes it more difficult for school teachers to talk about alternative identities and different family structures within the LGBTQ communities. And so it's not divorced from a political agenda and platform that wants to see trans people hide, that wants people, you know, to go back into the closet uh, at the same time that activists are fighting for their rights to exist. And so it's, it's disheartening, but two years ago, it wouldn't have been trans people that they were accusing this person of being. It would have been Antifa or something else, right? And so uh, they pick their enemy, of course, and then they and then they circulate it quickly. Right. The enemy a couple of years ago might also have been an illegal immigrant, which is another accusation that was leveled uh, about Gosar. I meant only that. Uh, giving him the benefit of a doubt that I don't, uh, I'm guessing that he did not mean to spread information that he knew was false. He just did not stop to consider whether there's any truth to it. And it was just seemed like too fat a pitch for him to swing at. Uh, yeah, I think for me, it's like, I long ago lost the ability to think of the, the best case scenario. And, uh, <laughs> When you see people in power know the power that they have, and if they're operating within an echo chamber, which he was operating within an echo chamber, as well as other uh, conservative pundits like Candace Owens and others quickly circulated mm -hmm. this information without any fact checking or corroboration from uh, the governor. And so that's why it was it always strikes me when we see these repeated patterns, we see these repeat offenders, that even if they don't know, they should know by now that it's important to double check, to verify, but there's very little consequence to being wrong uh, and wrong in these ways that are uh, really quite dangerous for individuals. Can you imagine being this person and, you know, you're just, you know, coming home from running errands and you see on the internet that you are being blamed for a school shooting, right? And people are circulating your, your pictures and you're just, and where do you go? Like, imagine being in those shoes and then being like, well, who do I even contact? Like, What's the hotline you can call at Reddit or Twitter to say, listen, like this could kill me. Like, what are we doing here? You know, and so I think we'd all do well to behave with some kind of caution, especially around the naming of uh, shooters. And you're right. The other narrative that was circulating was that this person, because they had Latinos as Latino name was somehow illegitimate and, and, and uh, uh, you know, quote unquote illegal, that was, that was quickly put into the mix. But I should point out too, that when it happened early on, there, there was quite a uproar from the left that this must be a white supremacist. This must be someone mimicking what happened in Buffalo. Um, and, and so those kinds of assumptions that we make are pre any verifiable information are, are where we learn our biases. Uh, and where we air them. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that there is a lesson for everyone who is in the social media era, a publisher uh, in some sense, not just, a public, not just public figures like Gosar or other uh, people with a lot of following, mm -hmm. it's just don't react. Don't be such a hair trigger because the one thing you know about information that's happening, that's coming out right after uh, something like this happens is that it's going to be wrong. Don't spread it. Mm -hmm. Joan, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about Nina Jankowitz, whose three-week mm -hmm. reign at the Disinformation Governance Board at DHS came to an ignominious end. The warring narratives are that she was ironically the victim of a disinformation campaign that branded this department, the Ministry of Truth in an Orwellian uh, turn of phrase. 
Um, the other narrative is that she was herself a spreader of disinformation because of her things she said about the Biden laptop uh, and other things. It, it struck me that the assumption on in some parts of the political spectrum was that anything with disinformation in the name must be biased against uh, the right wing. And that led to an awful lot of the uh, bitterness about her role and a lot of the um, outcry against what she was doing. What's your take? There was so many misunderstandings about that board from its kickoff. Was It was very confusing. Uh, DHS is not allowed to monitor U.S. social media. So you can't monitor anybody that you know is a U.S. citizen. And so Nina is well known in this field for studying Russia. And her job in the task of that disinformation governance board was very much about Russia's impact on immigration narratives in the United States. And so even if you look at the history of the term of disinformation, it does come from Russian tactics of information warfare. Uh, disinformation isn't even something that we start using heavily in the US until after Trump takes office. And that's because not just of uh, the influence that people were investigating of Russia's meddling, quote unquote, in the 2016 election, but also in the kinds of tactics that the Trump administration had been utilizing uh, to spread lies through the weaponization of social media. And so the disinformation governance board could have easily have been named, you know, you know, Russian narratives research or something much more plain or much more about the the work. But in our field, when I hear disinformation and I hear Russia, I think about this sphere of the field that Nina is very well known in as someone who has uh, top-notch research chops and is uh, very effective at doing the work. And the other piece of this around spreading disinformation about the Biden laptop, this is a favorite accusation on the right that still is very unresolved. Even the person who uh, originally gave the laptop to uh, the FBI and Giuliani claims now that there are new things that are popping up that people say were in the laptop that he didn't see and he didn't think was part of the laptop. And so it could be that there is also like a hacking operation here where there's some truth and there's some lies. And so, and then the US intelligence early on, even though it was anonymous, was coming back saying that this is a plant, that this is Russian disinformation, that, uh, and, and, it, and it's reference to disinformation isn't always just about the content, it's about the tactic. So it's being planted in the US. And if you look back at the story, I mean, it is quite like a lifetime movie that Hunter Biden like drops his laptop off at this little store in DC that does uh, repair. He doesn't remember that he left his laptop there. It contains pornography of himself. It contains uh, him doing drugs and it contains uh, these uh, uh, documents that prove that he's selling influence, right? That's a lot of stuff to leave behind in a laptop and then when we look at, well, what else is on the laptop? Are there grocery lists? Are there, you know, messages to friends and family? Like that stuff isn't there. So you wonder what actually is being accounted for here and, and what is this forensically? Um, but I don't think we knew enough about the origin of the laptop to quite bring it up to the status of disinformation, but... I was very careful early on to just call it a media manipulation campaign. It was meant to cause an uproar and change particular narratives about Biden at a very critical time in, in, the, in the nation's election process. And so, you know, everybody at that time was waiting for some kind of shenanigans and we got them. 
but it was very unclear at that time what was really happening. But anyhow, I, I think it was unfortunate that the name of the board was what it was. You know, unfortunately, um, this word of disinformation is going to cause a lot of drama in the, the next couple of years. And so we want to be really careful about how we apply it. All right, let's get on with our conversation with Dr. Lena Wen. Dr. Wen is an emergency physician, uh, the former Baltimore Commissioner of Public Health, a professor of health policy at George Washington University, among other important roles that she holds down. She's also a regular guest on CNN, writes a column for the Washington Post, and she has a memoir out that uh, went out last year called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. So Joan, let us join Dr. Lena Wen. Hello, Dr. Lena Wen, and welcome to In Reality. Thank you so much. Great to join you today. Now, Jonah and I talk a lot about uh, information dysfunction, the erosion of trust in the institutions that seek truth, like media in particular, but also science and medicine are among the reality-based institutions that have taken some body blows in recent years, most especially during the COVID pandemic, uh, the results of which you've seen firsthand. But recent weeks have presented us with a whole raft of other public health challenges, all roped up with their own special flavor of misinformation. One in particular that dominated the headlines until quite recently was the baby formula shortage. Uh, and that created the kind of gap that lead to misinformation. Joan, you had some thoughts uh, about how to frame that issue. Yeah, so uh, there was a very recent article by Davy Alba at Bloomberg about this. And I'll just read a short little excerpt from it to because I think she gets at it very quickly. She writes, as a nationwide baby formula shortage sends parents into crisis mode, social media posts containing dangerous misinformation about homemade formula recipes have gone viral, raking up views in the millions. Although major networks like Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube have taken steps to label photos, videos, and posts with contextual information pointing to the harms of such recipes, and in some cases removed them, they have done so inconsistently, allowing the vice to continue spreading and putting children at risk. And what I think is really important here that we understand is you have major news organizations covering this baby formula shortage, which is driving people to go and buy in bulk, which is making the shortage even worse. We saw this, of course, during the pandemic around toilet paper and masks and hand sanitizer. And now here we are with a very important, you know, staple for many families and it's it's pretty hard to come by. And as a result, there is this knowledge gap created and misinformation online is filling the void with these DIY recipes. And so, Dr. Wen, I was interested in hearing from you as a, a person that's been in public health, what's happening here and, and how would you describe the situation? And are there examples from the past uh, work that you've done that would help us better understand where we might end up? Well, Joan, I come to this as a physician treating patients and um, also as a as a mom. I have two little kids of my own. My younger one just turned two. And so it wasn't very long ago that I was feeding my children baby formula and really cannot fathom. I mean, parents have so much to worry about without thinking about without having to worry about how they're going to get food. I mean, in this case, we're talking about sole source nutrition for babies, that especially for newborns, for young babies, baby formula may be the only thing that they can have. And so having something that um, that everybody just assumed, I mean, when I was raising my kids or when they were so young, I could have never imagined that we would be in this place where we just would literally not have the one food that they need. 
And to your point, I think it's been quite disturbing to see the types of responses that have come out about how to address this issue. I mean, I don't think any of us really should be questioning that there is a huge crisis at hand when the one food that babies need is 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 now not easily available. And parents are turning to desperate measures because of, of how dire that the situation is. But the types of comments that I've had, I know when I've talked about this issue or when I've tried to, to combat misinformation, I divided into three categories. The first is people saying, well, what's wrong with homemade formula? You know, I am 60 years old or 80 years old or something, and my parents fed me homemade formula. Why can't we just do that? And there almost is a um, is a, a sentiment behind that of maybe there's something wrong with corporate America. Maybe there this is just we're just being sold a bag of goods that we have to give babies formula. What's wrong with making it on our own? Of course, we know that there are a lot of unsafe recipes out there. Um, there are recipes out there that have actually gone viral on the Internet that involve raw, unpasteurized milk. And so that clearly is something that's really dangerous for for babies. And that so there's that. Then there's another segment of people who say, well, why don't you just breastfeed your children? And in a way, this further shames women. I mean, I, um, with both of my kids, struggled with breastfeeding. I needed formula, especially for my first, to supplement breastfeeding because I just wasn't producing enough milk. A lot of moms have that challenge. And to now tell them that it's somehow their fault, they're not producing enough milk, I mean, that's obviously a problem. But I see that trend come across as well. And I think the third element that I'm seeing a lot is it speaks to a fundamental distrust that was already there, some distrust of establishment, as in, well, why would you listen to your pediatrician? Why would you listen to these other sources? We are moms. We will provide you information. And I think that part, that particular thread is really hard to combat because I actually think that a lot of people who are spreading information in that way they're probably well-meaning. I mean, they're trying to share their own breast milk or they're giving their own recipes for what works. The problem, though, is that those are not necessarily safe methods. And I think it's very difficult to tell people who already have a distrust of establishment to listen to the American Academy of Pediatrics or the CDC when they would probably believe in the mom next door more than they might. And so to your question about how do you combat that, I do think it's peer to peer. I think a lot of public health is meeting people where they are with trusted messengers. Trusted messengers usually meant, or at least previously meant, the CDC or the FDA. Why are they not seen that way now in your experience? Well, I think the issue is is multifaceted. I think that in the past, I'm not sure that the CDC and FDA were necessarily trusted messengers. I think they were unknown messengers. As in, when I was the health commissioner, for example, in Baltimore, if the CDC had come in and, and given a presentation in the city, I don't know that people would have come to that presentation. Or if there were a um, an article in the Sun or something in our local news about here's what the CDC says you should do, I'm not sure that people would necessarily listen. They listen a lot more to the local to our local health department because we had such a long track record in the community. We hired people. We had um, our staffing. We had more than a thousand staff who were from the communities that that um, that that they live in, and we also would do outreach through community partners. And people would listen much more to someone they know who. Um, who runs their neighborhood association and who happens to be their neighbor um, and, um, and, and maybe babysat their kids, then they might this federal agency anyway. So I think before the pandemic, CDC, FDA, these other entities were just unknown. And so maybe didn't have a positive uh, connotation, but probably didn't have a negative one either. Since the pandemic started, there has been this huge polarization when it comes to views about federal health agencies. Some people think that the CDC and the FDA and Dr. Fauci, et cetera, are wonderful and now think more highly of these agencies and, and, and individuals than they ever did before. Others have greater distrust for a variety of reasons related to how polarized our country is. And some of it also is due to maybe some missteps that the agencies have made themselves. Yeah, let's talk about some of those, those missteps um, and thinking about the overall distrust of medical institutions right now, you know, it, it's, I agree with you that the pandemic became um, a really difficult test of scientific communication. 
uh, there hadn't been really uh, concerted effort to think through, well, what services do social media and companies need to provide in the event of a massive global public health emergency? And how do they assort content and preference certain things? And so when you went online early on in the pandemic, there were so many imposters and fakes and scams and grifts and and in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, um, domains had been registered. Over 160,000 domains were registered with the words COVID or coronavirus in them with also words like insurance, unemployment, safety, you know, and, and uh, of course, coronavirus.com was bought up by someone who um, had a particular interest in selling uh, certain products and ideas. And so um, it wasn't as if public health really stood a chance in an information environment that is so easily exploited. What do you think the the lessons here around scientific communications, scientific communication are related to online communication? Obviously, because of the pandemic condition, everybody was at home. It's not like you can go into work and say, hey, I heard this crazy thing on the internet. Do you think it's true? Right? So we're more connected than ever. We have access to more information than ever. ever. But at the same time, trust in our institutions is declining and it becomes more difficult to get the truth to the public. And in your experience, what do you think was happening and what are the lessons we should take away from it? Yeah, when I look back, there are some things that I wish I and others had done differently. I think we tried, but I think there are things that in retrospect, we could have done better and still can do better going forward. And here I refer to people who are the messengers of accurate information. I mean, I think I, I don't have the answers when it comes to the grifters, right? The people who are trying to profit from um, from the pandemic in some way, who are trying to sow disinformation for their own um, purpose or their own political or monetary gain. I don't I don't know what the solution is to that. I mean, you all have a much better handle on what it is that social media companies can do and what those responsibilities are. When I look at the communication from the public health standpoint, things that I wish I and Dr. Fauci and the CDC and local health officials and others have done, I think there are three things that um, we could have done better and still should do better going forward. The first is to communicate that change is to be expected. I know we did do that, as in I think in the early days, the fog of war, we definitely said things could change. But I don't think that that message came through strongly enough to the point that there has been so much now, so many accusations levied against public health for being flip-floppers, when actually we changed our guidance based on new research and based on changing circumstances. And I liken this to clinical medicine. I mean, let's say that we're treating a patient for cancer. If new research came out that there's a new chemotherapy regimen, you would expect that the recommendations would change. Or if the, the patient is responding well or not very well to a particular treatment, you would expect that the, treat, that the next recommendation is going to change. Well, the same thing would happen in the case of the pandemic. And that would explain why we initially didn't know that COVID is airborne. When we did, we recommended masks. We didn't initially have N95 masks in great quantity. Then we did, and we started recommending it. At a certain point, mask mandates did not become necessary because the level of cases decreased and we had vaccines. And so we were able to peel that back. I mean, change is the bedrock of good public health response. And I think we could do a better job of, of uh, forecasting that so that when those changes do occur, it's not seen as if we're backtracking, but rather that this was all the expectation all along. The second is to be really transparent about the how and the why, and not just explaining the what. Much of the reason why I believe the CDC has lost some of their credibility is that they didn't fully explain the how and why. So when their isolation guidance first came out in last December, um, a few months ago, as an example, it sounded like they were saying, oh, the science has changed. That's why we're able to reduce the isolation from 10 days to five days. 
except the science hadn't really changed. What was happening at the time was that we were facing a an imminent collapse of our public health infrastructure and our, and our infrastructure writ large because we didn't have enough workers. I mean, if we were to quarantine people for 10 days, we wouldn't have enough healthcare workers. We wouldn't have enough food service workers or public safety workers. And so I think if the CDC had come out and said, isolate for 10 days if you can, but if you cannot because you're an essential worker, five days and then going back to work with a mask for five days is what you need to do. I think that kind of explanation when it's, when it's actually based on science or when it's based on necessity would actually do a lot to restore trust. And then I'd say the third thing is we need to stop being afraid of telling people, of giving people nuanced answers. There mm. are a lot of public health folks who still feel uncomfortable addressing the topic of natural immunity. The fact that you do have immunity, some degree of immunity after recovery from infection. Now, you should still get vaccinated if you have not. But the fact that natural immunity exists is a it's a fact. And I and I think if we deny that, then we end up really eroding trust. And back to your question earlier, John, about baby formula, I think we can acknowledge that back in the old days, um, people did make homemade formula and babies did survive. But that doesn't mean that that's the optimal formula. And still, there could be dangers associated with bacterial contamination or not having enough nutrients. I mean, I think two things can be true at once. And we need to be much more intellectually honest and trust the people that we're speaking to that they will understand these complexities. You raise an interesting question there. The public's grasp of nuance may not be as powerful as, as you're saying, although definitely we should have faith in people's ability to hold two things in their mind at once, but people are pretty bad at measuring risk or distinguishing correlation from causation. There's a, a kind of innumeracy in the public. And I think in public health communication, you know better than anyone else that it's important to finesse those shortcomings. Yeah, that's a it's a good point. And it's very true that people's understanding of risk is um, it is going to vary a lot. And there's an uh, there's an element of health literacy that comes into play here too. Another factor on top of this is that we also have to meet people where they are. I mean, I hear many of my colleagues in public health still talking about the importance of mask mandates. We're still thinking that vaccine mandates are the way to go. And I, I, I mean, I, I think in an ideal world, yes, if our goal is to reduce virus transmission and we're able to get the public to comply with these, with, with these mandates, sure, that's the way to go. But that's literally not where people are. I mean, I was just um, I was just flying for for business and at the airports that, that I was at and on the plane, we're talking about less than 10 percent of people, way less than 10 percent of people were wearing masks. I mean, if that's the and I actually went to a conference that was for public health professionals and the attend. I mean, thousands of people in closed uh, in closed indoor settings where well less than 10 percent of people were wearing masks. And so if that's the understanding of most people, then our advice also has to adjust accordingly. You can't just beat people over the head and say, you have to be wearing a mask if that's not what they're going to do. I think that doesn't mean that we need to give up, for example, on good advice to people, but we can give more nuanced advice that actually meets them where they are in their understanding. So for example, if they're not willing to wear masks, what if we say, okay, we would still recommend that you wear masks, especially if you're in high risk settings. And by the way, we'll make these masks free for you, high quality masks free for you. Or you're not going to be willing to stop going to weddings and, and indoor bars and other things. But how about before you visit your immunocompromised grandmother, you do a rapid test. I mean, I think those are the types of common sense things we need to switch to, recognizing the audience that we're speaking to, because if our advice is so far from where people are, you also lose trust that way too. I would like to switch gears a little bit because uh, we don't want to make this podcast odorously long, but I feel like we could talk a long time about this. But let's switch gears a little bit to another um issue in the news. Uh, we had another mass shooting um, related to racism in Buffalo. And the manifesto that this uh, shooter uh, wrote and published online is, uh, is a particular racist screed uh, that we have read before. 
uh, a big portion of the manifesto was literally copied and pasted from the Christchurch massacre, whereas the Christchurch massacre was focused on Muslims. We had a very um, big change in the in the rhetoric around invaders and replacements in this Buffalo shooting. Uh, where he, he had written that he believed that black people are the most privileged people in America and uh, that nobody was really recognizing that. And so that's why he chose his target and was calling uh, black Americans invaders and and replacers. And I know that you've thought a lot about and and worked on trying to understand racism as a public health issue. But in an, in an aftermath of a situation like that, can you help us understand what's going on in Buffalo and how public health officials and others triage a situation like that, which is meant to terrorize? I'm not sure I have the answer here. I mean, I would say that from my standpoint and from the standpoint of a lot of us in medicine and in health, we have been told whenever we've addressed gun violence or racism or other issues in the past that this is not our lane, that this is not the topic that we should be wading into because it's outside of our area of expertise. Except I'm an ER doc, and I think it's very difficult to tell those of us who are on the front lines treating trauma victims that gun violence is not something that is in our area of expertise. I mean, I've treated victims who have come in um, with um, with gunshots, with um, with the um, with shootings because of assault rifles. I mean, I've seen the kinds of mass destruction that um, that it, it, that comes as a result of this. And I think that there is also a public health approach that one can be taking to address this issue of of gun violence. I was just reading in um, an op-ed that Rick, that Nick Kristoff wrote. Um, in the New York Times about five years ago, where he talked about how, in his words, that a, the liberal approach, if you will, the liberal political approach to addressing gun violence may actually not be as effective as a public health approach. And I think what he meant here, and I had written something about this as well a couple of years ago, that if we're talking about gun safety, we might want to switch to, um, or we, we might want to use, for example, what the public health community did with automobile safety that we're not trying to say no one should ever drive a car. And we're not talking about um, about limiting people's access to guns, but rather that there are evidence-based approaches that can be used in order to reduce the violence, in order to reduce the the impact, in order to in order to to, uh, to save lives. And so, are there things that we can do when it comes to gun safety? And so, I think that's um, the type of of conversation that needs to be had. And I think that public health can do a lot to lead the way in addressing issues like treating gun violence as a public health issue. And um, and to the other point you raised about treating racism as a public health issue, we have seen during COVID that um, health disparities are are rampant, that they were not created by the, the virus, but that it has been here before and that this pandemic has just unveiled them. And so understanding health disparities also, you peel one layer back and you can see the structural racism and inequities that got us to where we are. So I think that's also in um, one approach for people in the public health community to begin addressing these issues using the language, using the framework, using the tools that we know. Lita, can you think of an example of how that might play out in the case of um, gun violence? There are I mean, the politics can get very, very sticky, very fast on this topic. This sounds like a very interesting way to get around that. But are there specific suggestions? Well, so, for example, when um, politicians on the left use words like gun control, it actually we know that it has a paradoxical effect of frightening gun owners and leading to more people maybe joining um, gun rights efforts and leading actually to more gun sales. But mm. if we framed it in terms of gun safety or reducing gun violence, 
that's something that many responsible gun owners would want to get behind. And so a public health approach would include um, collaborating with gun owners and gun rights activists to think about what are the things that can be done together that actually will make a big difference and are not opposed by individuals on the gun rights activist side. And so that's, again, something that was done in the case of automobile safety. And you might look at things like research on smart guns, right? Smart guns that fire only when you have a pin, uh, fingerprint, um, the way that you, you know, I, I look up, if my smartphone were stolen, unless people had my fingerprint or my face, they wouldn't be able to open my smartphone without a lot of other uh, measures taken. Why is that not done for, 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 for guns? Or what about better training for gun owners? Or what about background checks? I mean, there are things that a lot of responsible gun owners would actually support that don't come with the political backlash of using language like gun control or even reducing guns. It's interesting to bring up language in this moment, too, because of how important it is. And, and there's uh, some other Harvard researchers that I work with at Shorenstein Center that are looking at conversational receptiveness and uh, and also the language that has been used for years and anti-smoking campaigns might be backfiring, uh, which is to say that over-communication of risks creates sadness and anxiety. Anxiety is often uh, alleviated by smoking, and so the messaging itself might be reinforcing the behaviors. And and so I hear you when when you say that uh, that the gun safety is a better way to think of this issue. I am also drawn back to early advertisements for guns in general, where they called it the equalizer, uh, and people might be familiar with that term from uh, I think. Uh, you know, make my day days. Um, but this idea that a gun is an equalizer, it was framed as, as a woman's right to have a gun in case of an emergency or in case of a threat of violence. The gun made her just as strong as a man. And so even when we think about the histories of these technologies and their marketing and how they end up uh, in in such a place in people's hearts and minds has a lot to do with fear, fear of the unknown, fear of aggression, uh, fear of uh, uncontrollable situations. But I'm reminded of what happened in Buffalo and, and looking through this shooter's manifesto and through the manifesto in Christchurch and all of the other ones that I've read is the point isn't necessarily about any particular person that they kill. These are not individualized attacks. The point is the terror. The point is to make people aggrieved and upset and uh, feel as if they can't go to normal spaces and places anymore because they might be targeted. It's it's to make people feel jumpy and uh, and and fear other people and and unfortunately it plays into um other issues that when they go online they become incredibly uh easy to manipulate i'm thinking here of last night uh there was a shooting in texas many babies just babies were murdered and this person had posted on facebook that they were going to shoot their grandmother then they posted i shot my grandmother then they posted i'm going to go shoot in elementary school and then they went and did it and the online reaction because there isn't a manifesto because there isn't an explicit motivation you saw all of these opportunists jump in and say well we know this this killer was trans or they say we know this killer must be white uh, we know this killer must be X because of all kinds of things before we even knew the name of, of the assailant. Uh, but the trans one has now grown in, uh, in different ways um, within, within less than 24 hours. And so what we saw is a misinformation campaign that began on Reddit where someone posted pictures of a trans uh, woman that looked similar to the shooter that those pictures were quickly refuted by the actual person whose pictures she they said, were um very clearly uh in response that uh she is not 
living in Texas and she's not uh, this person. But when it moved, when the content and the images moved over to Twitter, it caught on like wildfire. And and the, the that sort of digital wildfire effect on Twitter made it really hard to take down any claims. And then of course, there was a tweet from Rep. Paul Gosar who was claiming that it was a quote unquote transsexual person that had committed this crime. Even in the best of intentions, when people are trying to get it right, we still have these open and exploitable information systems that do as much as they can to make it difficult for the public to know what's really happening and then also to further marginalize and and publicly uh, shame small vulnerable groups. And so I was wondering, like, in terms of your experience as a, as a doctor and a public health professional and thinking about, you know, what it means to put information into the public, does it seem like we're fighting with the wrong tools maybe, or that, you know, where do we start in terms of trying to remedy a situation like this in terms of, you know, is it that doctors need to be more vocal and out there and, and pushing the right kind of information? Is it that uh, public health professionals should be out there talking more about gun safety and, and we should be supporting that? Or is it the case that the design, uh, this is how I feel, I feel the design of the technical platforms themselves give a first mover advantage to disinformers and manipulators who want to weaponize them in this way. But I'm, I'm interested, doctor, in your opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that, again, I can speak to the um, what should be done on the platform side, just because this is, I it's it's not that it's not my area, or it's not that I don't think I should be weighing in, but rather it's literally not my area. I just don't know. Um, but, you know, to your question, let me go back to something you, you had said. Um, and it's gonna it's going to sound like it's it's a different topic, but it's I think I promise you it's the same topic is that I think we need to get over our fear that stating facts can lead to other people weaponizing them. As in, people are going to weaponize whatever they want to weaponize, regardless of whether it's true. That should not stop us from actually stating the truth. So I am seeing this a lot with monkeypox. And um, many of the initial outbreaks of monkeypox outside of areas where monkeypox has been um, ha has been found in the past have been cases of transmission um, between men who have sex with men. Now that is important to understand. I mean, if that is true, which it is based on, on the reports that we have from numerous countries, it's important for investigators to know, it's important for clinicians to know, it's important for contact tracing purposes, it's important to advise certain populations that they might be vulnerable. I think the fear in stating this has been that, well, could it somehow further stigmatize this population that is already very vulnerable? Could it bring back the memories of the AIDS crisis in further further shaming um, this, this, uh, this population? I mean, it is, you know, we don't know that monkeypox is sexually transmitted, but it might be that among these particular networks that are individuals who have prolonged close contact with one another, if there are in fact outbreaks that are centered on in these networks, we need to know for public health purposes and cannot be afraid to state the truth, to investigate it, and also to let the public know for purposes of helping people to protect themselves and knowing who is most at risk. And yet I think I have seen in recent days and recent weeks a fear of stating that, that fact. And so I, I'm not quite sure if this relates to um, the point that you are trying to make, except to say that um, I, there needs to be, we cannot be afraid of, um, of disclosing to the public what we know, while at the same time really fighting back on whatever untrue conclusions people may be drawing at the same time. And Jonah also wanted to add something else you were mentioning about, um, about the language that's being used. I think that language is everything. And I think that extremist language on both sides really are harmful when it comes to getting us to a, a place that makes sense to most people. So for example, um, back to COVID for, for a moment, a few, a few months ago, 
I genuinely wanted to understand. I mean, there are people who want mask mandates in place still. And at that time, we had very low levels of, of COVID-19 cases by, by comparison. We had record lows of hospitalization. I mean, I wanted to understand from people, what is it going to take for you to say mask mandates don't need to be here anymore? And the types of responses I got um, over Twitter were things like, we need to wait until there's universal health care. We need to have a cure mm. for long COVID. We need to have paid sick leave. We need to have improved ventilation. We need to have global vaccination rates be, be high. I mean, that those might be good goals to shoot for, but we really can't. That's not really practical. Or the people who are using the framing of defund the police, when actually I think most people mean reforming the police, not defunding or abolishing the police. I think that kind of rhetoric doesn't help. And we need to recognize whenever I think whenever somebody uses language that don't that doesn't have exceptions, as in if somebody says we need to have we need to allow all guns, regardless of whether they are, you know, um, AK-47s or if they're saying, and we need to ban all guns, even if it's somebody who is a responsible gun owner. I think we really, our, our ears really need to perk up and see that that kind of language actually is used as fodder by people who want to get whatever other side really ginned up. That's very helpful, Lena. I, I'd, I'd like to extend the the point you're making about language to a, a broader broader field of play. You talked uh, about Nick Kristoff's point about automobile safety, and you could make the same point about smoking, how these population level public health crises were definitely improved, dramatically improved by a whole bunch of forces, including public health officials, including government coming together, but also including people changing their own behavior. When you look at the the crisis in public health information, are there things that ordinary people can do? So who are not part of the uh, the public health establishment, uh, who are not part of the media, to clean up the information pollution problem in this area uh, and promote better health outcomes? I think the single most important thing is recognizing the power that we all have. As in, talk about trusted messengers. We are the most trusted messenger to many people in our lives. Maybe it's our neighbor, maybe it's our colleague, maybe it's people, uh, maybe it's our niece and nephew. I mean, there are people who look up to us. And when we hear disinformation or suspect that somebody, maybe we see somebody has posted something on social media, it, I think it behooves us to try to talk to that person and see where they're coming from, not in a judgmental way and say, well, what were you thinking reposting this, um, this myth about COVID vaccines or, or whatever, but seeking to understand where they're coming from, trying to meet them where they are and addressing the misconceptions that they might have. Uh, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to confront people that we know. Um, in some, I think a lot of times it's easier to just let it go. But I think recognizing our own power here, I believe that that's how change ultimately is going to be made. That seems like a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you, Dr. Lena Wen. It has been a wonderful conversation. You've been listening to In Reality, the podcast about power, truth, and media. Thanks to our producers at Podcast Partners, Amelia Spooner and Holly Duncan Quinn, and to the Shorenstein team of Megan O'Neill and Lauren Faz. And thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by the very nice and very expert team at Podcast Partners. If you like how it sounded and you're a podcaster yourself, learn more at podcastpartners.com.